back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Monday. 29th day of August 2022. Hope you all had a great week, great weekend. You know, I know I did as you know, today's my personal favorite day of the year. Keep that personal and private for right now because there are more important things on my mind to uh, discuss. Now, a lot went on as we're getting closer and closer to the start of the NFL season coming up in now just 13 days from uh, the uh, big day that you know, I know everyone's uh, very excited about it. A lot of thoughts on the NFL as we go on here. Also, one of our long drawn out NBA nightmares came to an end last week. As usual, happens on the day after I record uh, the podcast. I have to wait several days to talk about it, but we'll get to that as well. But I want to start with the, uh, as I usually have in the last couple months, the two local baseball teams in this area, the Mets and the Yankees, who, you know, They've been on different trajectories for the last little while here now. But uh, both of them, I still feel very confident, are not just making the playoffs, but winning their division. But it's varying degrees in confidence. Now, let me start off with the Mets, who, first off, it was a very good weekend for them, a bounce-back weekend for them after losing both ends of the Subway Series, the half that took place at Yankee Stadium last week. And it's not even like they played bad in getting swept in those two games against uh, the Yankees. They were given a chance both nights uh, by Walker and even Scherzer, who gave up a career-high four, or season-high, excuse me, four runs in uh, that start. It's just, you know, they weren't able to get the big hit. And you think about the Tuesday game, they came within feet away of winning that game. Lindor's line drive down the left field was about two feet to the right. We're talking about the Mets taking a lead and in all likelihood Diaz with how good he's been uh, this year, shutting it down in uh, the ninth inning. But uh, they, unfortunately for them, came away on the losing end of things in uh, the Subway Series and did what you're supposed to do against a bad team 
in the Colorado Rockies, and the, the Rockies are a dread, dreadful team. Beat up on the bad teams. Now, you would like to sweep a series. You'd like to uh, win all four games in the series, but we're unable to uh, you know, get any offense going on uh, Sunday, which seemed to be the theme for both of these teams. I mean, the reason you're not completely just like getting annoyed if you're uh, a Met fan off of this is because you were still able to maintain the ground that you've built on the Braves. Because a couple of days ago, it looked like the, the Braves were really charging ahead toward the Mets. They had taken care of business against the Pirates in Pittsburgh, had come within one game of the Mets in the standings, but uh, the you know they lost two out of three to the Cardinals over the weekend as the Mets were... Uh, taking care of business against the Rockies. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the beatings that you would have hoped it would be over Colorado, especially when you look at the Rockies and you see such a stark contrast between how they play at home compared to how they play on the road. At home, they're a pretty good offensive unit. On the road, they're just, you know, miserable for uh, the most part. But it was an all-around good weekend for the Mets when you take, you look at not just what they did as far as the active team taking care of business on the field, but the Old Timers Day celebration on Saturday. Did not get to watch much of this due to work and some uh, family commitments uh, that night, but you know, this was a long time coming. This was something that Mets fans had been screaming about, had been wanting to have happen. Because while they don't have the history of, say, the Yankees, the Dodgers, you know, the Cubs, the Red Sox, the, the teams that you would consider the blue bloods of Major League Baseball, they've been around long enough that you can honor their history. They've been around... You know, for more than five minutes here. This isn't like the Tampa Bay Rays or the Florida Marlins who have been around since the mid-90s and have no one that you can really grasp onto and hug and love and adore from those teams. The Mets have, you know, banners up there. They have uh, pellets on the wall. They have players worth celebrating that had significant time with that team, had significant moments with this franchise. Now, were there some guys that it was baffling and confusing to see them there? A little bit. I know there was some mixed feelings from uh, Yank, from certain Met fans on Joe Torre uh, being there, considering he's viewed as, oh, the Yankee guy, even though he, he was at one time a Mets manager. And I'm sure there was some, uh, you know, feelings about Mike Hampton being there, considering, you know, what a disaster he was when uh, he uh, left here. But uh, for the most part, it was an all-around successful day. You got to see guys that were longtime favorites, big uh, Beloved by uh, this fan base. And listen, when you play an old-timers 
day game, it's not going to be pretty as far as what you see because you know most of these guys haven't picked up a bat or a baseball in 10, 15 years. But it's good to celebrate your history. It's good to celebrate your past. And, you know, the Mets have enough of a history in this sport that's worthy of celebrating. As I said, not on the level of the Yankees or the Dodgers. But at least at least you're not sitting there, you know, like it was with the Wilpons, where it feels like every time you're having a celebration, it's an homage to the Brooklyn Dodgers or some other longtime National League team. No. Steve Cohen gets it. Steve Cohen is an actual fan of the New York Mets and is going to do his best to uh, make sure Mets fans get to celebrate their team's history. Now, they're hoping to make more history this coming October. because And they're definitely in the right place, the right spot to do it. Because, I mean, you look at the Mets... You're going down the stretch here. I know it's easy to look at the schedule and say, oh, they've got it you know, easy. It's a weaker schedule. But you're playing the Pirates, the Nationals, and the Oakland A's. Not exactly you know, teams that are going to be running out there, top-notch starting pitching. Not exactly teams that are going to be running out there Big studs that should be shutting you down. Now, at least you would think that. Although, if you watch the Yankees the last two days against those Oakland A's, you'd be outright disgusted. And you now, I should be happy today. I should be in a, a great mood today. But after what I've seen from the Yankees each of the last two days. You know, they had me wanting to throw up after each one of these games. You know, a four-game split against the Oakland A's in that dump of a ballpark. After you had 20 hits on Thursday night, bludgeoned them right out of the box. You know, Friday, all right, it's one of those games going to happen, not getting a lot of offense. The only runs you drove across were on Judge's 49th home run of the season. But then you look at the last two days. You get one hit, one hit over 11 innings against a pitcher in Alan Aller who had an ERA of about six coming into this game. A guy who had walked Five batters in his previous start, and you only manage one walk against him in eight innings. Hell, the only reason the Yankees even scored any runs in this game is because A.J. Puck completely lost the strike zone in the 10th inning and threw one all the way to the backstop after plunking uh, Anthony Rizzo that allowed two runs to score on uh, that play. And, you know, there's only so many times that you can ask this bullpen, a bullpen that you look at right now and, you know, it's a guessing game every night. Who's going to close the game out? Because you really don't have a closer. 
you're lacking most of the guys that you thought were going to be reliable arms at the beginning of the season. I mean, they are getting Clay Holmes back from the IL tonight, but who knows what to expect from him after what we saw for the previous five weeks. And, you know, that, you know, there's only so many times that you can call on the likes of Luizaga, who's pitched better since coming off the IL, or Ron Marinaccio, who, while he's a rookie, has looked really good. And, you know, even before giving up the home run to a, to a Stephen Volt, Marinaccio didn't look great in that outing on uh, Saturday night, you know, showing the signs of a rookie who hadn't pitched in several days. So it was just, you know, I started to feel good about this team. They had been 5-0 and after the whole Boone slamming the table, screaming, oh, it's right there in front of us stuff. That kind of had become a rallying cry and thinking, all right, this is the turning point of the season. And then you see crap like this over the last two nights. Quite frankly, it's embarrassing. And they still have six more games to go on this road trip with series against the Angels in Anaheim and then the uh, Tampa Rays. And while I haven't looked at the pitching matchups for them against the Rays in Tampa, they do get a break over these next couple of days in Anaheim. While they're going to likely see Shohei Otani at the plate, He's not going to be taking the mound after pitching on Saturday against the Blue Jays. And that, that's another thing. They're, they've been catching some breaks here lately because the Angels have been taking care of business against the Blue Jays, yet the Yankees haven't been able to mount their lead back to double digits. Over the weekend, they caught some help from the Boston Red Sox with a, a win against the Rays and weren't able to take care of that. On Saturday night. That's why we're sitting here with, what, uh, 34 games left to go in the season? And the Rays only seven and a half behind the the Yankees. And seven back in the uh, loss column. Now, I look at these two teams, the Yankees and the Mets. And when it comes to, you know, World Series chances because both teams have had World Series expectations. You know, the Yankees always set the bar at, uh, you know, World Series or bust, fair or unfair. While with the Mets, a lot of excitement coming in to this year and the fact that they've been able to maintain this lead in the NL East all year long and have gotten DeGrom back looking like DeGrom and so far no setbacks on that front. Both teams, realistically, it's right there in front of them for them to make the World Series and possibly be matching up in the, the World Series. Now, if you're going to look at it, if we're going to be fair about this, the easier path there probably is for the Mets as far as... No, you only have to really overcome potentially an NLCS for the Dodgers. And that is, you know, as long as you win the division. It becomes tougher if you lose out on the division to the Braves, and then you're using Scherzer and DeGrom in a best two out of three 
and then having to look at, you know, going with either Taiwan Walker or Carlos Carrasco in a game one in the division series kind of sets your pitching staff not in a, a disarray, but not, you know, as Joe Girardi used to say, it's not what you want. It's not who you would want starting a postseason series for you. But as long as they win the division, they can line up their pitching the way that they want. The the one concern I have there for them, the middle part of their bullpen, getting from those aces to Diaz. I'm still... There are still nights where I cringe when some of the, some of these guys come in. I know Adovino's pitched better. Lugo's looked all right. And in the postseason, they'll be able to take certain starters and pitch them out of the bullpen, whether it be Carrasco or Peterson. You know, whoever you're not going to use is you know, your fourth starter in those situations. But we've seen plenty of times where a guy goes to the bullpen in the postseason after starting all year, and it's you know not exactly a lockdown kind of situation. Take Jay Happ in 2020. What a mess that turned out to be for the Yankees in that postseason. And the reason why I say it's more difficult for the Mets is I don't know what to expect from the Yankees on a night-in, night-out basis. Outside of, you know, Judge being the one consistent offensive force for this team. I mean, if they can get back to the point where Stanton can play the outfield four nights a week, then fine. And if they can get some more certainty in their bullpen, whether that be with Holmes returning. Or if, say they don't, say they run out of time in stretching out Severino and they need to use him out of the bullpen in September and October. Then you've got um, more options out there. Hopefully, you get uh, Scott Effenross back as well. I'm not even I'm not even counting on the likes of Chapman or Britton, who I know had a little bit of a scare in his uh, minor league rehab assignment over the weekend. But you know, a couple months ago, I would have said easily it's the Yankees with the easier route because the only team that you truly have to fear in the American League is the Astros. You don't. I don't think there's anyone you really take seriously in the central because they're really going to get only one team, whether it's Minnesota or uh, Cleveland. And then you look at these wild card teams, the Rays have the pitching, but they've been beat up with injuries all year. The Mariners, you know, it's been forever since they've made the postseason. So, there's really no one on that team that has experienced winning, that has experienced the pressure of October. And maybe, you know, sometimes, you know, someone's lack of experience in something, someone's lack of knowledge in doing something is uh, their best friend, or it could turn out to be their worst enemy. You don't know in until uh, you get there. I mean, but the teams that I probably fear the most facing in, in the postseason, obviously Houston, because that's been a demon for the Yankees, but also Toronto, because we've seen 
that lineup. We've seen how one through nine, they're a juggernaut offensively. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to get consistent performances out of their uh, pitching staff on a night-in, night-out basis. And add to it, the, the way the Yankees have played the last couple months, how can you truly have the same confidence that you had in them you know, two months ago as we sit here today on August 29th? Because, like I said earlier, just when you thought momentum was on their side, they completely split spit the bit, excuse me, in the final two games in Oakland, losing to a team and not getting enough offense against a team that they should have kicked right in the ass and had thinking about their off-season plans in the middle of August. All right, a lot I want to get to today, give you some more thoughts with the baseball coming up as well as uh, mixing some some thoughts on some of the things that have gone on in the NFL this week with the fight, uh, quarterback battles, uh, talk about uh, you know the Kevin Durant situation as well as a uh, kind of surprising trade that went down in the NBA. So a lot to get to for the next all oh, about 40, 45 minutes or so here. So please sit back, relax. Help. Put your feet up if you feel like doing so and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Now, while I've centered the first part of this show, around the Yankees and the Mets because they're the teams I've watched the most. There were, of course, more things that went on in baseball this past week, especially off the field, than just what's going on with the Yankees and the Mets. And this next one is a move that came kind of out of center field, should we say. Some would say risky move, but also a wise move by the... Seattle Mariners locking up their uh, young star, emerging star, Julio Rodriguez, to a long-term contract extension, the likes of that we have never seen in the history of professional sports. Because right now, as we sit here today, he is guaranteed 12 years for $200 million, at least 12 years for 200, excuse me, $210 million to be corrected there. But with both player and club options in this deal, the deal can extend to as high as 18 years for $470 million. So let me go through some things here and explain uh, how that will work. The first seven years of that deal, he will get $120 million. That And that includes a $15 million signing bonus that he's getting right up front. And that will go on uh, this year's uh, luxury spending. So between next year and the 2029 season, 
he will make $15 million per year on average annual salary. And then is where things uh, get tricky because after uh, the uh, seventh year of this deal, the Mariners must decide to either re-extend Rodriguez with a sizable club option that is either a club option for eight years or 10 years, depending on how he finishes in MVP voting uh, during uh, the first part of the contract. So, you know, they'll be deciding on whether to extend the contract by eight years and another $200 million, where the deal could be 240 for eight years if he finishes uh, in the MVP uh, voting two or three times uh, in the top 10. It could be eight years for 260 if he has four top 10 finishes. It could be eight years for 280 if he wins an MVP and finishes in the top five one or more times or finishes in the, in the top five of the MVP val- balloting on three occasions. Um, or it could be a, another a deal of 10 years for $350 million added on to the 120 that they've already paid him. If he wins two MVP awards or finishes in top five of the balloting in uh, four years uh, during that first seven-year stretch. I know, complicated, a lot of stuff to handle there. It's mind-blowing to myself, but he's even got options here because if they don't exercise uh, any of their multi-year options after the seventh year, and let's, let's say, for example, say he doesn't live up to the contract. Say, you know, you look at the season he's having this year where right now he's the favorite to win the American League Rookie of the Year. Not just with the individual season he's having, but I, I've always thought that team success should play into this kind of stuff as well because you know, my feeling is it's very easy for a guy to put up big numbers, top-notch numbers in you know situations where there is no pressure whatsoever on them. Say he's just average for from 2023 to 2029 and they decline any of those 8 to 10-year uh, player options that they can add onto the contract. Well then, he can execute a uh, 5-year uh, player option that uh, would be worth $90 million and could escalate as high as five years for $125.5 million based on how he finishes in silver slugging and voting and all-star appearances. Now, if, if he declines that after the team declines it, he can be a free agent at the age of 30. And to me, this is so wise this is so smart by the Mariners 
to get out in front of this now. Because you watch this kid, I mean, his abilities, his skills just jump off uh, the screen to you. He's a remarkable talent, has power, has speed, plays a really good defense in the outfield. All the way around, he looks like a stud, and he hasn't even truly grown into his body yet. Probably still has a, a little bit more uh, maturing, uh, physical maturing to do. So if you got to a point where, say, this is just the t- tip of the iceberg, what he does this year, and all of a sudden explodes after this year and becomes, you know, becomes the next Mike Trout, then you could have possibly been talking about a 10-year contract for $500 million at some point. Or, you know, whatever, you know, once you see an extension for Juan Soto, maybe this kid is asking for more, asking for more than heaven, um, earth, the moon, and the sun as far as what kind of uh, long-term extension he could uh, possibly get. So, to me, a very wise move by the Mariners to get out in front of this uh, and make this move now because now you're locking up your young star till he's at least 30, locking him up on very team-friendly terms for the next eight or nine years before the contract really starts to hype up if you um, pick up any of the potential player options that you have on him. And, you know, he's a fun player to watch. The Mariners have been a fun story to watch this year as they currently sit at the second American League wildcard spot. And you look at the the wildcard uh, standings right now. Right now, it's a battle of five teams for three spots. The Rays are in the first spot, half game up on Seattle. Seattle has a game over Toronto, though uh, Toronto has two less wins. Uh, They haven't played as many games yet. Then there's Baltimore, who's still surprisingly half a game out, one of the better stories in the sport. And then Minnesota, three back of that final spot, um, due to uh, them being in second place in the Central. And after that, you really can't trust anyone else because the White Sox are on a losing streak right now, can't get out of their own way. And the Red Sox, you don't even know who's starting these games for them on a night-in, night-out basis. They've been so beat up in uh, their starting pitching staff. Be a fun story to watch with the Seattle Mariners because the last time they made the postseason was that historic 2001 season when they went set the big league record for most wins in a regular season. And unfortunately for them, many people don't remember that. Many people don't even really care about that when you consider they didn't even get to the World Series that year. If they would have got to the World Series and lost to the Diamondbacks, that's one thing. But the fact that they bowed out so easily against the Yankees, they almost looked at as like a punchline, a joke. Like, oh, that didn't really actually happen. And uh, 
one of the teams that they are competing for wildcard spots with, the Tampa Bay Rays also signed one of their young players to an extension uh, in the last week. That player being a guy we have not even seen, not heard from in the, the last year, being right-hander uh, Tyler Glass now, who is recovering from Tommy John surgery, going to miss all of this season in all likelihood. And once again, another smart investment here by the Rays as far as how they lined up the contract extension. Because next year when he's back, the first year when a guy's back from Tommy John surgery is kind of a touch and feel kind of season. You don't know what to expect. There's times where you may have to uh, skip them a start or two after not uh, pitching for so long. So next year they've got him uh, lined up only making uh, just over $5 million. Well, the year after that, he's going to make $25 million. It's two years for $30 million. He would have been a free agent after the 2023 season. And, you know, this is a guy that, you know, like we've seen many times with the Rays, where they get a guy in their system, get him with their coaching staff, They take his raw ability and are able to mold it into something special. And he's been lights out ever since uh, that uh, trade with Pittsburgh years ago in which they were able to get him, uh, were able to get him amongst a few other prospects for Chris Archer who never really was able to recapture his magic with Tampa Bay in uh, Pittsburgh. The only problem with Glasnow has been his durability. Now, I've always said someone's best ability is their availability, and that has not exactly been the best ability for Glasnow these last couple years because he's pitched for the Rays for three seasons, but it made a combined 37 starts. And while... Over those 37 starts, he's been lights out. You still want this guy to be one of those 30-star, 200-inning-like workhorses for you. And so far, he's not been able to do that. They're hopeful that next year, after what will be a successful return to the mound, that by 2024, all of these injuries are behind him and he can finally live up to that full potential over the course of a full season. Now, one guy that is finally returning from injuries uh, is uh, Bryce Harper, who missed two months after being struck on the thumb and fracturing it. Uh, but, you know, the Phillies didn't really miss a beat without him. Uh, we're 12 games over 500 without him and now sit here 16 games over at 72 and 56 in the second National League wild card spot, two and a half against uh, up against the uh, Padres, and it's really going to be you know a, unless the Giants get hot. Let's be honest; it's going to be a battle of four teams for uh, three spots. Whoever doesn't win the National League East between the Mets and the Braves, then the Phillies, the Padres 
and the Milwaukee Brewers, who I can't get really get a, a good grasp on that team. They've got good starting pitching, but the bullpen is kind of eh since they uh, traded Hayter, even though he's been no world beater for uh, the Padres. And you know, my two big concerns for the Phillies when I've been able to watch them are one, how they're going to be able to close out the game on any given night. I, I worry about Rob Thompson kind of overusing David Robertson because let's face it, David Robertson, while it's great to see him having this career renaissance, he's not the 26, 27-year-old rubber arm guy that he once was with the Yankees. Well, he's still very good. You got to give him, you know, time off between appearances. You can't, you know, have him go out there, give you two innings, 30 plus pitches, and then expect him to be good to go the next night like he would have been able to do a decade ago. And then here's the the other problem with them. While Harper is back, this hasn't uh, recovered the the other problem that he's been dealing with all season long, the elbow injury that's prevented him from playing the outfield. So now if you have him in the lineup, he's locked in as your DH and you're miscasting two players in corner outfield spots in Cassianos and uh, Kyle Swerber leaving you, you know, in a porous position uh, defensively in those uh, two spots. Now it hasn't, you can't say it's completely killed them when you consider, like I said, they're 16 games over 500 and in position to make a postseason spot as of today. But when you have that kind of defense, it's going to come back to bite you at some point. Again, especially against better competition than, you know, say getting uh beat up by the Pirates yesterday. So, no, it's good to see Harper back, good to see one of the stars of this sport back, but still hasn't completely solved all of the Phillies' ailments. All right, going to take a break here, come back on the other side, turn my attention to the NFL where there was a bit of a dust-up in the last week. We're starting to see some quarterback decisions being made and the same old same old with uh one of uh, the nfl's most popular teams continue keeping it sports with m3 i'll be back Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you 
also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Now, I don't want to make too too big a deal of this because, you know, Alan Iverson once famously said, practice, we're talking about practice, and, you know, unless there's injuries in the mix here, um, unless someone suffers a season-ending or career-threatening type injury, to me, what goes on in practice more times than not is not the biggest deal in the world, especially in the NFL. And we only know about this because there were camera crews on hand. I'm sure a lot more of this goes on that we don't see. But it was made a big deal late last week that there was that fight between the Bengals and the Rams that took place at a conjoint practice. Something that you're seeing become more and more popular in the the NFL these days, because let's face it, these teams don't take the preseason game seriously. Most of the starters are out of there by the second quarter, and you spend uh, the final two and a half quarters, if you're the coaching staff, trying to figure out who's fitting into the 53-man roster. Outside of your two starting lineups and your top reserve players, you're usually trying spending those uh, rest of those games to figure out who's making up spots 40 through 53 on your opening day active roster. And with that being said, the fact that your top guys are not getting a lot of game work action, you see a lot of times in the week leading up to the game, these teams will schedule these conjoint practices where they'll get reps against the opposing team's first-team defense or first-team offense, respectively. So you've seen uh, this week, it just so happened that uh, the two teams who played in last year's Super Bowl, the Bengals and the Rams, were set to meet up in their final preseason game. And they had back-to-back days of conjoint practice. And I don't know if it's so much so from them meeting up in the Super Bowl last year, but these are big guys. These are competitive, tough guys. And practicing in that kind of heat is going to start to wear on uh, people, going to start to get on people a bit. And you see, uh, you know, emotions fly. You usually see this um, at least uh, once every uh, preseason during one of these conjoint practices, probably a lot more than that than we know about. 
but the two teams will break into a fight. And it just so happened last Thursday, they broke into multiple fights. The final one uh, being the one that cut practice uh, short a little bit early, even though Zach Taylor will tell you they were just about to end anyway. But it got started between Leonard Floyd and Lyle Collins after Lyle Collins took off Leonard Floyd's helmet, turned into this whole big melee that at one point you saw uh, Aaron Donald stand there holding two helmets from Cincinnati Bengals players and swinging them around almost as a weapon. And it's led a lot of people to wondering, oh, is the NFL going to do something about this? Are they going to suspend Aaron Donald? Well, just to my knowledge, the NFL has no control over what happens in a practice situation. They have no control over how these teams um, handle how they conduct themselves in practice outside of the rules about how often you can wear pads during a practice, how many reps each player takes during a certain practice. Now, the, the NFL can't punish, suspend anybody based on any actions that occur in practice. And that's why this is not going to turn out to be a Miles Garrett situation where Miles Garrett was swinging a helmet at, at others on national television on a Thursday night football game. And while he wasn't the only guilty party in that, he was the one that came away the worst looking in that. And listen, the same here applies for Aaron Donald. You're one of the top stars in this sport. You're considered still the best defensive player in the sport. Some think you're the best overall player in the sport. Not a great look when you're swinging around other guys' helmets almost in the, the form of a weapon. So, you know, the Rams say they're going to handle any punishment eternal, internally, and that's the way I hope it sticks. I hope that, you know, the NFL doesn't come around and try to find anyone, try to find either of these organizations, doesn't lead this as a catalyst to banning conjoint practices. Because, like I said, this is becoming almost more important than these preseason games uh, these days. The, the fact that, you know, this, more so than any game action in August, is where most of your starters are going to get their real work. And the fact that they're outside in this god-awful heat wave that we've dealt with uh, this uh, August, tempers are going to flare, tempers are going to fly, and it's going to lead to things like this. So hopefully this is the last we hear about this situation and it doesn't escalate to anything worse during the season. Now, talking about escalating to worse things. Now, at what point does Jerry Jones sit back and just 
have a feel of embarrassment. At what point does Jerry Jones look at the Mike McCarthy run Dallas Cowboys and say, what the hell are you guys doing? Because quite frankly, it's shameful and it's embarrassing the fact that for the last two years, they have led this sport in penalties. Over 266 penalties. How last year, they was a slight decrease from the year before. They only led the league with 127 um, penalties for over 1,100 yards. That's an average of seven and a half penalties for 65 yards per game. And that is a clear lack of discipline, a clear uh, lack of awareness, and a clear lack of leadership on that team. Three things that Mike McCarthy is supposed to do as the head coach of a football team. Now, clearly there's no discipline being shown. There's no, there's no accountability being shown there. And hey, it starts at the top. Because Jerry Jones treats all of these players like they're his children. They, they seemingly know, no matter what happens, daddy's here for us and we can get away with anything we damn well please. Well, at, at some point, when does he look at it and say, oh, enough is enough? Because, it, well, you know, what goes on in the preseason, you know, that doesn't matter record-wise. What's happening in these games clearly shows that they have not learned from past mistakes. Clearly shows they are not learning, especially when you see that in three preseason games, they've led the sport with 35 combined penalties. I mean, quite frankly, it's shameful. It's embarrassing. And, you know, Jerry Jones, you know, he cares so much about the brand of the Dallas Cowboys and so much about wanting to be the player's best friend. How about you care about, you know, what goes on on the field? You know, you're always called America's team. You're considered the most popular team in the sport you're considered the highest valued team in the sport but I don't understand how that can continue to be when yeah you'll have these really good regular seasons but time after time again you disappoint in the postseason and it's been 25 years since they won a Super Bowl almost going on 26 and since then they've not even gotten back to a conference championship game. There are run-of-the-mill franchises like the Vikings and the Carolina Panthers that have been in the conference championship game at least four times in that time span. And it's not like you're the only dogs on the block anymore when it comes to the NFC East. You know, a lot of people out there, not myself, but a lot of people out there are picking the Philadelphia Eagles to win this division this year. And why is that? Not because uh, of uh, the quarterback, because that's the one spot where I still think you have a large edge over them. I'll take Dak over Jalen Hurts any day. But you look at the overall depth and increase in talent 
on uh, the Eagles this year. The ta- offensive skill players that they've been able to put around uh, Jalen Hurts. The fact that they, on paper, look to have a pretty solid defense. You know, they're not going to be any pushover. And in all likelihood, when you look around the NFC, the NFC East could be a one team um, makes the playoff division this year. Especially when you look at the South with the Bucks and the Saints. You look at the North, you still got Green Bay there with Aaron Rodgers, but a lot of people like uh, what they see from Minnesota. The the West outside of Seattle is uh, still loaded. So the East could get you one team this year, and you don't want those penalties to be what costs you being that one team. Now, speaking of Seattle, they were amongst the teams that made decisions on their opening day starting quarterback over the last couple of days. Now, you figured that when Carolina traded for Baker Mayfield, that was a lock for him to be the starter. But they almost didn't need to break that news on ESPN a couple of days ago. That um, people were like, "Yeah, we know that. Of course, that's the way it's going to go." But if there was any doubt, the injury to Sam Darnold completely uh, wiped out any doubt there. Seattle was the other team that we were waiting to see their final quarterback decision going into this year. And Pete Carroll named Geno Smith over Drew Locke as the opening day starter, which, ironically, who is Seattle going to be going up against in their first game? That's right, a home date on Monday Night Football against their former quarterback, Russell Wilson, and the Denver Broncos. You know what this clearly says to me? You know, Pete Carroll can go out there and pump his chest, talk about how great Geno's looked in training camp, how great he's looked in preseason games, how he's ready for another shot as a starting quarterback. This is a tank move by the Seattle Seahawks. Okay? They have two first-round picks in next year's draft. They have the ability, even if they're not picking in the top five, to use those picks and move up and get the quarterback of their choice. We've seen Geno Smith over the last nine years. Across now, this is what? His third or fourth team? There's been nothing to write home about when it comes to Geno Smith. He's been an okay backup quarterback, but when you give him the reins as a starter, nothing really impresses you. Nothing really jumps off the page about Geno Smith as a starting quarterback in this league. And this shows, as I said, two things. One, that they're tanking because next year's draft is supposedly much, much deeper at the quarterback position than this past April's one was. And... They grew tired of waiting for the San Francisco 49ers to make a decision, which that's the last like 
question mark of this NFL offseason, if you still want to count it as that. One of the Niners going to make a decision on Jimmy Garoppolo. They've, they've clearly announced their plans that, oh, we're moving forward with Trey Lance. He's our guy. He, he's going to be our, our quarterback. And when you announce that, no one's going to be willing to trade you any significant draft capital, any uh, pieces, not even, you know, say a fifth round draft pick to get a guy that you are clearly ready and willing to move on from. A guy that you have no uh, care or purpose for him being on your team anymore, especially when you look at the money that he's due. Where if he's still on the 49ers roster come September 10th, his contract for just under $27 million this coming year becomes guaranteed. That's why tomorrow's a very interesting date because by 4 o'clock East Coast time, you have to cut your roster down to 53 men. And that's not setting in stone what your roster will be on opening day because with cuts, there could be players cut loose around the league that you bring in and it leads you to making more roster moves between now and the night before your uh, first game. But it's clear they have no purpose for Jimmy Garoppolo being on their, their team anymore. So why are they continuing to drag this on? Why are they continuing to wait this out and not cut him? Because, you know, there's going to be no more preseason games. In all likelihood, they're going to have Trey Lance under bubble wrap at practice and keeping him as safe, as sound as possible. So, I mean, no one's trading you anything for him. And there's two destinations that to me make all the sense in the world for him. One is Seattle, unless they're truly willing to tank for this year and uh, draft their long-term answer at quarterback. And the other one is Cleveland. Because Cleveland, you know, they're going to be without the show in the first 11 weeks of the season. And although Jimmy Garoppolo would not want to, you know, be an, just a fill-in quarterback, you go there, you put up good numbers with that roster, get off to, say, a anywhere from an 8-3 and three to 10-1 and one kind of start by the time Deshaun comes back. A, it creates a, a quarterback controversy and potentially gets you to keep the job for the remainder of the year since they're only paying Deshaun $1 million. And B, ups your value going back into the free agent market next year where there could be teams looking for a starting quarterback. So one way or another, over these next 12 days, we're going to finally get some kind of resolution. That resolution will be the 49ers finally cutting loose Jimmy Garoppolo. All right, going to take one last break here, come back on the other side, and finish up with some thoughts on Kevin Durant. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back.
a very rough last couple of days and weekend if you're a fan or supporter of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Because, you know, when you're a team that on paper, in any sport, is projected to be one of the worst teams in their league, you do want to have certain things to watch. You want to have certain bright spots, something that, all right, we know we're not going to win a lot of games this year, but have something that's going to entertain me, something that is going to draw my eyeballs, my attention to the screen when the team is playing, especially in a small market such as Oklahoma City. And the hope was that was going to be rookie Chet Holmgren, who the Thunder selected number two overall in this past June's draft, looked really good in the summer league, so good that you know, just to protect him for, um, from any potential injury, they shut him down after uh, one uh, uh, summer camp game uh, to prepare for the regular season. But unfortunately, a disaster happened for them in the last couple days as Chet Holmgren suffered a... Liz Frank injury to his right foot that will knock him out for the entirety of the 2022-2023 season. And it's pretty disappointing when you consider that he was, you know, what many fans across the league were, were ready to, and looking forward to watching a seven-footer that is a pretty good shooter that can shoot from the outside. Had a pretty good all-around game to him. Could shoot three-pointers. Uh, could block, rebound, play a uh, uh, decent enough defense. But unfortunately, in a pro-am game uh, last week, he was. Uh, jumping up to contest the layup and awkwardly came down, injuring his right foot. And now we're not going to get to see him until the 2023-2024 season. And I hope for his sake that this is not a kid whose body betrays him because you look at him physically, how he's built. Seven foot tall, but he only weighs 195 pounds. I mean, no. In some ways, he's kind of built the same way as Kevin Durant. And I don't want to put that kind of expectations on him already that he's going to be the next KD or something like that. But a big guy that's slender and he's already dealing with a foot injury before even playing one NBA game. You know, that, that, you know that's the same kind of thing that derailed Greg Oden's career before he really could get started with Portland. And I know there's a lot of people that are saying, oh, why is he playing in a pro-am game? Uh, the, why would the Thunder allow this? Look around the sport. A lot of guys are playing in these. One, an example? Who was he defending in that game? Who was he going up to try and 
contest the layup of LeBron James. If LeBron going into what year 19 can play in that game, then we should have no problems with a rookie in his early 20s playing in in, uh, that kind of scenario. It's just a bad luck thing that unfortunately happened. And for his sake, I hope that his body doesn't start to betray him before he can get his NBA career started. Now, speaking of LeBron and his Lakers, they made a surprising trade over the last couple days. And I say surprising when you consider now the sum of the parts on this roster. They traded Talon Horton Tucker, THT, known as by most uh, Laker fans, and Stanley Johnson to the Minnesota Timberwolves for veteran guard Patrick Beverly, who played a big role uh, last year for uh, uh, the Timberwolves in getting to the postseason. And allow me to correct myself quickly. The trade was to the Utah Jazz, THT and Stanley Johnson, to the Utah Jazz for Beverly. Because if you remember, Beverly was sent along with a package of draft picks and I think, what, three or four players to... uh, the Utah Jazz in the Rudy Gobert trade, a trade that's kind of held up this offseason when it comes to potential deals for Donovan Mitchell and Kevin Durant. But I digress there. Where this makes things all the world interesting here on a couple fronts. A, you remember after the Suns got eliminated in the postseason, Patrick Beverly was making the the rounds between ESPN, Fox Sports 1, doing all the media uh, things, going on TV, A, using it as an opportunity to rip Chris Paul, but also promote himself for potentially getting traded from the Timberwolves and kept bringing up the Lakers as the number one team he could get traded to, even going as far as saying that, oh, if he got traded to the Lakers that him and LeBron would take the Lakers to the Western Conference Finals. But there's another element that you add on here that's interesting. And that's the beef that's gone on for almost a decade between him and Russell Westbrook. How these two can't stand each other. Hell, if you go on Westbrook's side, it's an utter hatred toward Patrick Beverly ever since the uh, knee injury he suffered uh, once upon a time, the torn meniscus, when Beverly uh, uh, was heavily guarding him as Westbrook was dribbling toward the sidelines to call a timeout. There's been beef since then, and it's never chilled down since. And now it's led to a predicament here. A, can you get these two guys to coexist? B, what's going to be the roles of of both Westbrook and Beverly on this team? Who's going to be the starting point guard? Because I don't think you can have them on the court 
together because Beverly is a better, well, Westbrook's a better scorer than Beverly. Beverly's a better shooter and a much better defender at this point than is uh, Russell Westbrook. And I've even seen reports in The Athletic over the weekend that if they can't qualm this beef and the Lakers are still unable to find a trade partner, which it doesn't seem likely, especially now uh, with the news that's come out with the Nets recently, that they could send Russell Westbrook home and just keep him off the active roster. The last time we saw something like this was, what, about 10, 15 years ago, the Knicks did this to Stefan Marbury. They they just agreed to pay him and send his, send his ass home because he was a malcontent and a problem for this team. And you know, I've never thought of Russell Westbrook as a malcontent, but now this kind of move is kind of, kind of have to put his ego in check and make him think uh, on some things. It, especially if, you know, he wants to continue playing because say, say this does happen and the Lakers send him home and don't play him at all this year. What value does he have? They they clearly can't get him anything for him uh, on the trade market. And then what kind of value would he have as a free agent next offseason? So now he's really going to have to look himself in the mirror and contemplate some things here. And finally, let me close out with this. Because to me, this is a, this is a story that you know, finally, cooler heads have prevailed here, and this was the only outcome that was possible here. Last Tuesday, it was announced that Kevin Durant has rescinded his trade requests and will be staying with the Brooklyn Nets for at least this season. And let's go back through the timeline here, shall we? June 30th, he requested a trade um, in a, a meeting with Joe Sy. A little over a month later, Josai flew to London, met with Durant face-to-face, and told him to choose between him or firing the general manager and the head coach. And somewhere between that point on June 6th and last Monday, um, or last, uh, yeah, last Monday, August 22nd, cooler heads prevailed. And they were able to get everybody in the same room. Josiah, Sean Marks, Steve Nash, Kevin, and his agent. And agree to hash this out, make nice nice. And as Sean Marks would reveal in a press release the next day, quote, continue their partnership. Now, first off, that comes across it, it even though at first when you hear about this you want to credit Joe Sy because he became the first owner in this what we call player empowerment uh time in the NBA to win a power struggle against a star player and not have his hand forced as far as possibly trading somebody But then when you read Sean Mark's comments saying continue their partnership, no, that's almost 
trying to sound like, oh, you conceded to Kevin Durant. No, he's the player, your front office, your management. You call the shots, especially when he hasn't even started his four-year contract extension yet. That doesn't kick off until opening night of this season uh, for the Nets. So to me, there was there was never any power struggle here because Kevin all along wanted, if he wanted to get traded, wanted to get traded to somewhere where they would keep the core of their team intact. I, I kept referring to it as, oh, if you're playing NBA 2K, the video game, and you just take your favorite player off of a team and put them on your, your uh, the team you root for without having to give anybody up. It was not going to work like that. The Nets wanted a you know Herschel Walker-like package, but the problem is that trade wasn't out there. Teams didn't want to gut their roster for Durant, even though he had four years remaining on contract. He's still a 34-year-old player even without how great he remains at this stage of his career. And there were certain players in this league that the Nets were unable to trade for with Ben Simmons still being on their roster. So to me, this was the only outcome that was possible here. And now you look at the Nets, now with Durant snang, with Kyrie Irving uh, not being traded this year, you look at them on paper, they have as good a chance as anybody to come out of the Eastern Conference. If these uh, guys, along with Simmons, are healthy, I mean, you're going to get Joe Harris back. You still have Seth Curry there, who uh, was a really good pickup uh, for this team. You re-signed Nicholas Claxton. You got Royce O'Neal. You brought in a couple of other guys um, in free agency. And there's still free agents out there available. I would like to see them go out and sign maybe a bigger body at center because I worry about Claxton getting pushed around at, at times. Well, I like the kid. He is still you know, a little bit lean there at uh, the center position and would like someone bigger when they're going up against uh, bigger, more physical centers, albeit you know Joel Embiid. But you know, on paper, this is a really good team this is a championship caliber team and you know if as long as Steve Nash doesn't screw up and they stay healthy why can't they go, come out of the east you know Durant and Irving after this offseason after they come away with egg on their face looking embarrassed they'll never admit it but they look like embarrassments they now have something to prove they now have something to show the rest of the league and the uh, the the people covering the league. So, no, why not the Nets? Why not them as uh, a possible team that could come out of the East this year? And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with Evan Thornton for Monday, August 29th, 2022. Everyone, please have a great night. Have a great week. Have a very fun, safe, happy Labor Day weekend. And I'll talk to you guys again sometime next week. And when we do, we'll just be a couple of days away from the return of the NFL. Until then, peace. Happy birthday, M3. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I 
have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.